I have a question for you. If you were Jesus, having just come back from the dead, who would you appear to first? Now think of all the people that you've run into the last three years. A minute, Would you appear to Pilate? Maybe Herod, Caiaphas, Annas, the priests. Would you appear to the soldiers? Herod? Now, I know some of you are not built that way. You don't want to come back and flaunt the fact that you were right and they were wrong. But would there not be at least a moment or two in the next 40 days that you would feel a little vindication. Maybe you're more passive. So you just go down to the local Starbucks and wait for the Pharisees to walk by so you could reveal yourself to them. Who would it be? Last week, I suggested that one of the great ironies of the first Easter was that it happened largely in quiet. To only a few, there were not large masses with powerful personalities, smoke, music, and fog machines. There was just a small cluster of people that witnessed this. There's another irony that strikes me about the first Easter we almost never think about. And it's that when Jesus came back from the dead, he seems not to have appeared to anyone who did not already believe, at least somewhat. Now, that seems strange to me because did Jesus not tell the Pharisees when they were asking for a sign that no sign should be given except the sign of Jonah? As Jonah was in the heart of the earth or the heart of the whale for three days, so would the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days. That's going to be the sign. Wouldn't you then use your resurrection to show the Pharisees that this is in fact the sign? But he seems not to have done it. The pattern of Jesus is exactly the opposite. He starts his ministry surrounded by vast crowds. Matthew chapter 4. He goes all the way through Galilee and Syria, the Decapolis, the region beyond the Jordan, Judea. Masses of people are following him, but as you move through the Gospels, his circles get smaller and smaller until just days before he dies, he's in a room with only 12. And then when he prays in the garden in John 17, he doesn't even pray for the world. He prays only for the disciples. He said, I am not praying for the world, but for those that you have given me, for they are yours. So the movement of Jesus's life tends to go from the many to the few, a small circle. Now, the circle's larger than just the 11. It probably includes at least the women who followed him to the crucifixion and then sat opposite the tomb, and it probably includes uh, some other disciples or followers at least, like the two on the road to Emmaus, that believe he is a prophet, powerful in word and deed. We thought he was the one. So the circle isn't just Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. The circle's larger than that, 
but it's not very large. And again, if this is your moment, why would you not leverage this moment to reach the world for the gospel? But he seems not to do it. In other words, the irony is that the first Easter was not evangelistic. It had other purposes that were even larger. The number of people saved on the first Easter was zero. But it's not a failure because that was never the point. What then was the point? Well, there were two. One I talked of last week. One of the big stories in Easter had to do with revelation. The question on Easter was not, is Jesus alive? The question is, how is Jesus revealed? How will that small circle of people come to recognize him? This is the question to Mary when she turns around. He says, who are you looking for? He's not asking her the name of the deceased. He's asking her about her expectations. How are you expecting him to appear? Who or what are you looking for? And so when Jesus comes back from the grave, all of the focus is on his appearances, not on the resurrection itself. And the way he appears is almost never the same from one person to the next. Some disciples see him with their eyes, but Mary sees him and doesn't recognize him until she hears his voice. Other disciples recognize him when he's talking about the scripture and when he's breaking the bread. This is the point. Jesus is among us but his appearance has changed. This is what Thomas learned. When Jesus said to him, you believe because you see. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they know. They have found other ways, opened other faculties for recognizing the presence of Jesus in our midst, because these are, in fact, the stronger ones. So the first big reason Jesus came was for revelation. The second reason, and I want to focus on this today, was commission. When Jesus came, he came not only to reveal himself, but to commission the people that were around him. So the question on Easter is not so much, how do we share the gospel? The question on Easter is, how is Jesus revealed to the world? How do people that are not in that small circle come to recognize him? And for that, we have to turn to the Gospel of John. The central figures in John are the disciples. There are five main scenes in these last two chapters of John, and the disciples appear in four of the five. 
The only non-disciple to appear in John is Mary Magdalene. So the five scenes in John are Peter and John, and John looks in and comes away believing. Mary Magdalene turns around in the second scene, hears his voice, and goes away believing. The disciples are gathered in a room behind locked doors when Jesus suddenly stands among them and shows them his hands inside, <laughs> and they are overjoyed believing. A week later, Thomas is in the room with the disciples, and he can't believe. And Jesus says, touch the hand, put your hand in the side. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and he walks away believing and finally, the fifth scene is when the disciples are on the beach. That doesn't sound right, but the disciples are, are in a boat. Jesus is on the beach and they join him for breakfast, which goes into a conversation with Peter. So the conflict in the gospel of John is between the power of belief and the power of unbelief. But these do not mean what we think. Belief and unbelief are not mental, intellectual, cognitive decisions that we make. Belief and unbelief are attitudes. They're predispositions. They're ways of seeing the world that we do not choose. They choose us. So when someone in John cannot believe, it's never so much because they're unwilling, but because they're unable. This is why John refers to darkness so much of the time. They stumble and they cannot see, not because they don't want to see, but because they genuinely can't see. When the gospel is presented, they're genuinely not interested or they genuinely don't get it. They're not pretending. Paul says the God of this world has blinded them so they cannot see the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. This is like a predisposition. And does this not describe so much of the world? All of the innovative methods we could invent cannot turn people into believers because they are trapped in a state of unbelief. They, they, they genuinely think other things are more important and they can't care for the life of them about the things we're saying when we share the gospel. And yet, yet, If Jesus were physically present in this world today, it would make such a difference. He would draw so much attention. He'd have enemies to be sure and some that we wouldn't imagine. But he would be a magnetic figure, not just because of his powers, but because of his presence. When you were with him, you would know that there was something different about him. He was centered. He was deep. He was connected to a source and a power. And even if you didn't like the things he said, you'd want some of it for yourself. 
how is Jesus going to be present in the world after he leaves? This is the big news in John's gospel of the five scenes that I just alluded to. The biggest scene is the one right in the middle in John chapter 20, 19 through 23. Something incredible happens in that scene that unleashes not just the power of Christ, but the physical presence of Christ all over the world. First, the disciples are in a room by themselves and they're terrified because the leaders outside who hated Jesus. And suddenly, when they are together, Jesus comes and stands among them and says, peace be with you. Then he shows them his hands and his side. And when they see it, they come to believe. And then a strange thing happens. When they recognize him, he doesn't leave. In Luke, the moment their eyes were opened and they recognized him, he vanished. But in John, when their eyes are opened and they recognize him, he stays. It's almost like he has another agenda. The purpose of coming into this room with the disciples is not simply to reveal himself. The purpose is to commission the disciples so that from this day forward, wherever they go, that's where he will be. They will take him with them. In fact, the very next thing out of his mouth is, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He doesn't mean, I was sent and you're sent. The language literally means in the same way, in like manner that the Father sent me. In that same way, I am sending you. There are not two sendings, there's one. I am sending you into the thing that the Father sent me into. You are not a sequel. You're an extension. I will continue to be in the world and accomplish the work of the Father as long as you are in the world accomplishing the work of the Son. Oh, this is a big idea. This means that there really is no difference between sacred and secular work. There is no some work that is sacred and some work that is secular. There is no secular work. It doesn't exist. The only thing existing are secular workers. And you can have them in the ministry. Anytime someone goes to work, whether you're a healthcare professional 
a construction worker, a stay-at-home parent, a professor, a minister, uh, an economist, an athlete. When you go to work, conscious of the fact that I am stepping into the work of the son who is doing the work of the father, it becomes sacred work. The difference is in our mindset. The occupation itself makes very little difference. As the father has sent me, I'm sending you. Then here's the (laughs) even bigger news. He breathes onto them and says, receive the spirit. In John's gospel, this doesn't happen at Pentecost. It happens on the night of Easter, on the same night of the day he came back from the dead. It's almost like the reason he came back from the dead was not just to prove something to unbelievers. No, no. It was to breathe onto that small circle of believers so that he could release them into the world. I think we have vastly underestimated what is happening here. I know I have. I think most Christians who have the Holy Spirit actually believe They have a rumor of the Spirit or a phantom of the Spirit. I don't believe it has dawned on most of us what it is Jesus has given us when he gives us the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus did was in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was conceived by the Spirit or he would not exist in the world. He was commissioned by the Spirit in his baptism. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was anointed by the Spirit in the synagogue when he opened the book. He was empowered by the Spirit when he went through the region and performed miracles And when he was put to death in the body, he was made alive by the Spirit. Literally everything he did, he did because of the Holy Spirit. This is how Jesus could hear God's voice so easily, so clearly, and so consistently. It's it's not because he was God. If that were true, then we've minimized his humanity. Indeed, if he had our humanity and not some others, if he was stuck with the same limitations and the same obstacles that I am in my humanity, there must be some other reason. And the reason is he was possessed by the Holy Spirit. Now on the night of Easter, He breathes that spirit that literally animated 
everything that you admire about him. And he breathes it onto us. There's one more really big. The news just <laughs> the news just keeps getting better. There's one more really big piece of good news that comes from John's gospel. Four or five chapters earlier, when Jesus was talking to the disciples about leaving, he was talking about this night. He said two things. One, I'm going away. And, and the other, I'm staying with you. And that doesn't make sense. How can he go away? And yet, as he said, never leave us as orphans. He said, I will come and the world will not see me, but you'll see me. In fact, I'll show myself to you in ways that I will not show the world. Well, how will you show us and not the world, said Judas, not Iscariot. Jesus said, pretty simple. The Father and I will come and live with you. We will reveal ourselves to you as we live together. Then, before he finished with them, he said, when the spirit of truth comes, he'll be with you forever. The world cannot see him, but you'll see him. You'll know him because he will be with you and he will be in you. Now, the really big news of Easter is that this spirit of Jesus is alive and active in the world, going not only ahead of us into Galilee, not only behind us as we walk along the road to Emmaus, he's actually going inside of us, animating our lives so that we become extensions of Jesus's mission in the world. That is big news. That is how the world will recognize him. Not when he suddenly appears on water towers <laughs> or on car windows or pieces of toast, actually, I've read. They recognize him when Christians all over, the ones that are close to them, one degree away, animated by the Holy Spirit, begin to live and act like Jesus. Oh, this is not heroic. It is slow and tedious and sometimes frustrating, but it is possible, church, and it is powerful. One life lived well, empowered by the Spirit over the long course of time can make a huge difference in this world. Every time that, um, that I talk like this, I think what, what, what you must be thinking how do we do this? You know, I want instructions. 
What are the steps? Well, you know by now I'm not going to give you those. I have only one word for you. Let. Four months ago, when this year started, I pulled aside and um, I got alone with God and I, I tried to frame the year. You know, I wanted to step it up. Stronger, better. And in, in my nature, when I have dreams of that, is to become very aggressive and very systematic. I got to find a routine, find the habits, and just work the plan. And the only word that kept coming back to me again and again was the word let. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let your conversation be seasoned with grace. Let perseverance finish its work. Let your light shine before all people. Let the children come unto me. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The opposite of let is make, strive, grasp, plan, perform, impress. I can do that. But I did not know how to let. When I let God channel the Holy Spirit through my life into the things I'm doing, I'm not just permitting him. Not just saying, well, there you go, do what you want. When I let, I'm cooperating, I'm aligning, I'm confirming, I'm nurturing, I'm allowing space for what God is doing to actually grow. I'm preparing, yes, but preparation itself cannot create the power of God. Preparation just gets obstacles out of the way. My word for you is let. It's like the Holy Spirit is trying to pour himself through you and some of you into work you don't even like. And you got your hands on the valve and you keep shutting it, not by resisting him, oddly enough, but by trying to do his work. It would be better for you just to ask yourself, what are the habits, the things that I do unconsciously that tend to shut that valve? 
you know, that, that compete with the work of God, that contradict it? In what ways does my schedule and my life crowd out the thing that I'm hoping God would do through me? And then ask yourself, if I were to make room for the Holy Spirit to just flow through me, um, what might I do to cooperate, to align, to affirm that God is in fact active in my life? Well, those are the questions I wanted to leave you. Church, the really big news this morning is that Jesus has revealed himself not only to the believers, but he has revealed himself to the world through the believers as they live and do mundane things in the power of the Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Can I get you to just bow your heads with me there in your rooms, wherever you're at? Please give me just these last 60 seconds so that I can pray a prayer of commission over you. Oh God, the circumstances that we are in right now are different. It feels to me like the church has been scattered in different places. And what seems to us like a handicap that we cannot gather could in fact be a gift that you have scattered us over domains across the entire county. And so you are present in those domains, whether we recognize you or not. I pray for the people of God. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we may come to know you better. Open the eyes of our heart so that we may know the hope to which we're called and we will know the glorious inheritance that belongs to those who are the people of God. And then Jesus with lives set on fire, release us into places and activities that seem just too ordinary and bless those places and bless our work in Jesus' name.